Well, as you're aware, we are uh, looking at the book of 1 Peter, and this morning we're uh, at the end of uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, last uh, we, week we turned our attention to this passage of Scripture. We started in verse 13, and we saw that Peter changed his focus. He changed his focus from a doxological praise and worship of, of the salvation we enjoy in Christ. He moved through the fact that we are called, we are chosen, we are sanctified by the Father, Son and Spirit to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable. And as a response to these wonderful truths of who we are in Christ, he said, well, this should actually make a difference. This should make a difference to you as, as a believer in how you live in this world. This should make a difference as, as a believer and a follower of Christ in how you interact with others. And the very fact that God has saved you his work of salvation should change your outlook on life. There were the three questions that we, we answered last week, and we're going to continue to look at those questions because, you know, as we learnt last week, Peter gave answers in the forms of three commands. And we're going to look today at the fourth command that he gives. The three commands that we, we looked at last week was firstly, set your hope fully on the grace that is going to be revealed to you when Christ returns. Set your hope on the certainty of that fact, on the treasure that that fact is to us. And then he gave some instructions on how we set our hope. We're to, to set our hope by girding up the loins of your mind. And that's a really funny saying, right? And it, it relates to the fact that in ancient Greek and Roman times, you had flowing robes. You didn't have trousers and shirts. You had, everyone had flowing robes. And to stop the encumbrance of walking or moving forward in direction, to get there in a, a quicker fashion, you would have to pick up your robe, so your legs were free to, to walk quicker or run. I liken that to rolling up your sleeves. Roll up the sleeves of your mind, get prepared for action, get prepared to, to uh, set your hope fully on Christ. It's an active thing, it's not passive. The Spirit of God works in our hearts to make that active. The second part of setting your, your hope fully on, on Christ is to be self-controlled and attentive. So that was the first command we covered in, in verse 13 of chapter 1 last week. The second command of this, this life of holiness, this life of sanctification, this life of following Christ was the command to be holy and conduct your lives in the light of that truth. 
So we were commanded to emulate God's holiness. And we learned that to do this, God's holiness in essence is a a result of God's calling in your life. Just as God has called you to himself, just as God has provided a way of salvation, he also calls us to be holy. In chapter 2, verse 9, this will be discussed in the next week or so, we see the, the marvelous result of this calling. God calls people out of darkness into his wonderful light. Calling doesn't just mean invite but conveys the idea of of God's power and bringing from darkness to light. And if you've placed your faith and trust in Christ, that is a reality. You've been caught out of darkness into light. And you can set your hope on the fact that this is certain and this is secure. Just as God creates light, When there is darkness, so he creates life, eternal life, from where there is death. You know, holiness embraces all of life. We learned that last week. And holiness is possible because the one who transforms us, the one who calls us, grants us by his grace, his spirit. As the Spirit works within our hearts and within our lives, it's a work of transformation. It's a work of transformation. Because the Spirit's fruit are those things that are holy. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Kindness, patience, self-control. Those things aren't natural for us. But they are a result of God's Spirit within our hearts. So in effect, our call to holiness is a call to understanding and being transformed by God's grace through His Spirit. And thirdly, we had the command to conduct ourselves as one who is ransomed. Because God is an impartial judge. He will will judge the, the living and the dead with impartiality. From a Christian's perspective, there should be no fear of judgment. Because the ransom has been paid. God's wrath has been satisfied through the precious blood of Christ. Christian, you've been bought with a price. And this price is is the precious blood of Christ. And this is key to, to our conduct. The key to our conduct is living in the light of the fact that you have been ransomed. That's the motivation it's the indicative before the command. It's the what well, all that God has done for us. I give all that I have for Him. That's the motivation. 
You see, the key thing as a believer, are we living our lives, are we interacting with the world at our side, with the people God places in our path in a way that displays what Christ has done for you? That's setting your hope fully on the grace of Jesus Christ. So that's what we learnt last week. And let's pick up the letter this week. So please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read down to uh, from 1 Peter 1.22 down to 2.3. But we're only going to cover to the end of the chapter. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all grass is like all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants. Long for pure spiritual mook, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You see, this is a continuation of the broad theme we started last week. The, the broad theme is we are called as Christians to live a life of holiness in the power and in the grace of Christ. See, Peter moves from these individual commands of set your hope on the grace of Christ, on be holy, on conduct yourselves in a manner that's um, worthy, to more community-based commands. And the two community-based commands he, he has in this section is firstly love one another earnestly. And the second one is found in 2 verse 2 where it talks about the long and the desiring for spiritual milk to, to grow in, in your faith. As I mentioned we only have time to probably cover the first command this morning. And we're familiar with this command. We're very familiar with this command. Who first cited this command? When all other answers fail, always say Jesus. All right? Jesus summed up the whole law when he was on earth with his disciples, did he not? He summed it up and said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So I'm pleased to see Peter is on the same page as our Lord. I'm pleased to see that God's consistent revelation about himself 
tells us the same thing time and time and time again. And we need it, folks. We need to be told repeatedly. Because I was in danger last night with about 76 minutes to go of not loving my Australian brothers. But all of a sudden my love became renewed at about the 78th minute. For some of you folks, you'll get that. I know for most of you Victorians, you'll have no idea what's going on. And I won't bother boring you with the details. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) But Brother Chris, you need to know these things. You are going to the promised land. The land flowing with milk and honey. And you need to understand these things. Sebastian, that was wonderful to hear an amen from down there, brother. For those of you who don't know, Sebastian is a fellow brother who is a New Zealand citizen. Now, I know some here are also maybe citizens by birth and don't even realise it after the parliamentary uh, thing that's been going on for the last little while. My advice to you is, come on, increase the IQ of New Zealand and declare, declare that you're New Zealanders by birth. Anyway, all frivolity aside, God's word is consistent and it continually portrays this fact that we are to love one another. Peter puts an emphasis on this in the same way as our Lord did. And I find it remarkable if you turn back with me to John chapter 21. Because I think it helps for us to understand a little bit about the recipient nature of the love that Peter is talking about. So move back to John 21. You know the story, Christ has died. He's been raised again. He's appeared to to Mary and the disciples. He tells them to go to Galilee. He's going to meet them there. They're still all really kind of confused about this, still the disciples, that is. They're not really understanding the power of the resurrection. But they're obedient and they go off to Galilee and they do what men do. They go fishing. I don't go fishing, but these men do. They were fishermen. So they started their normal day, their normal occupation, not knowing that this was not going to be the new norm. Because these men were going to turn the world upside down with the proclamation of Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So John 21 verse 4, we'll pick the story up. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet his disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? The answer was no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of, because of the quantity of fish. Isn't that beautiful? Just cast it on that side. You might find some. God in his abundance through Christ just super abounds. Verse 7. That disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for 
They were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out of the got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus didn't need the fish from the boat. <laughs> Notice that. He superabounded. He was abundant in his giving to these men. He didn't need the fish. He'd already had the fish. He'd already prepared the meal. How tremendous is that when we think about that in light of our own salvation? Let's continue the story. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went abroad and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Another miracle. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And, and so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is a proof of the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. He was eating with them. He was providing for them. He was their Lord and Savior. And then we have this wonderful interaction with Peter, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He's not pointing to the fish. He's pointing to the other disciples. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these other men that are gathered here? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him for a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. The same way Peter had denied Christ three times, the same way Jesus restores Peter with a three-pronged witness. Simple question. Do you love me, Peter? Notice the situation. He's sitting around a fire. When was the last time Peter was sitting around a fire? In the courtyard of the high priest. I can just imagine in Peter's heart as he looked across that fire and Jesus asked me, do you love me? That flooding into his mind was the last time when he was denying him. But Jesus restores him. And that's the marvelous truth of the gospel, folks, that Jesus restores you and I, even though we are completely undeserving of it. Completely undeserving. He restores. Why does he do this for Peter? To give him an example. Follow this Peter. Command this Peter to those that you're going to be ministering to. Peter, this is fulfilling the commands I've already given to you. This is what it means to love your neighbor. You see, folks, when we love our neighbor, 
It is a direct reflection on Christ's love for us. It is a direct reflection on Christ's love for us. And you know what? That love will be without certain things. I wasn't going to touch on this, but I'll just give you the list that Peter gives with very little comment. See, love that is deeply grounded in Christ's love has no malice or evil. Has no deceit. Has no hypocrisy. Is not jealous or envious. Does not and is not given to slander. That's chapter 2, verse 1. This is a small list. If you want a larger list, go to 1 Corinthians 13. This is a wonderful thing for you young, young parents to do. We do it with our kids. We got to memorize 1 Corinthians 13 when they were young because, you know, as parents, you're always struggling with siblings loving one another, right? So, okay, Christian parents, maybe we should go and use the Bible to try and instruct our kids. Good thing to do, by the way. So you grab 1 Corinthians 13. Love is not rude. Love is not selfish. Love is not boastful. Love is not... There's 13 of them, I think. 13. You want a fuller list of what it means to love, meditate upon those. Libby, do you know what they are by memory? (laughs) (laughs) Just that I ask. (laughs) But, you know, that's that's what love is in 1 Corinthians 13. If you want to know what it was to love one another, go to 1 Corinthians 13 and, and work through those things. See, the command here is to love one another. It's at the end of verse 22 in our English translations. To love one another is, in this command, is bound by two participles. Sorry for getting English on you and and language on you, but there are two supporting thoughts of what it means to love one another tied up in these two verses. The first one is to purify your souls, or it actually puts it in the past tense, having purified your souls, but it's in the active voice. It's something that has happened in the past, but it's an ongoing action. In the Christian life, we would call that growing in Christ. We would call that sanctification. And he says, having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another. It supports the main command of loving one another. There's this purification process, this, this thirst after being holy, about being holy because I am holy. It's about living a life that is ransomed, understanding you're ransomed and passing that love on to others. Just like Christ passed on that love. This purification takes place because it's an obedience to the truth. This phrase, obedience to the truth, is used often throughout the New Testament. And obedience to the truth is the truth of the gospel. It signifies uh, submission to the gospel. If you go to Romans 1.5, you, you see that. Romans 1.5 helps us identify this. This is what Paul's take on it is. is um, 
concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received a grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. His grace and apostleship was to declare the gospel. Peter himself at the start of the letter has already told us this. Read it carefully. Uh, verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ for the sprinkling with his blood may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Obedience to the truth is obedience to the gospel. Obedience to the gospel is realizing that you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you and it's going to change you for God's glory. As there is no transformation, if you're, squ if you're squashing the Spirit of God, work in your lives, folks, repent. Get on board. Allow the Spirit and grace of God to work in your life to transform you so you can love one another earnestly. See, in no way is Peter proclaiming a works-based righteousness here because the command to love is rooted in conversion. It's rooted in the fact that you have been called. It's this conversion that enables you to love. When it's incredibly tough at times to do so. It's this deep sense of a living hope within our souls that enables us to love. Even when people are rude. Even when you see hypocrisy. even when there's slander against your name because you may actually stand up for the truth and say same-sex marriage isn't the way that God designed it. We have these examples. My question to you is are you allowing the Spirit of God to shape your walk? Are you being obedient to the truth? To be obedient to the truth, you need to know the truth. To be obedient to the truth, we need to be people of the book. The revealed God of word, word of God. So love one another earnestly through purifying your souls. The second part of Sabu is to do with being born again. Verse 23, Since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. This is not the first time uh, Peter has used this, this uh, phraseology, is it? We've read it before. Perishable, imperishable. Perishable, something that rots, something that does not last. I love raspberries. Who likes raspberries here? I really like raspberries. But one thing I do not like is three-day-old raspberries in the fridge that have got mold on them. Raspberries are good for a season. They're good for a moment. They're good for maybe three hours straight off the bush. But they start perishing as soon as they're picked. Actually, life's like that as well, folks. This mortal bodies we have, and we've been reminded of that this week, these bodies we have are perishable. 
But when we have faith and trust in Christ, it's imperishable. It's a hope beyond hope. So he states, you love one another earnestly because you have been born again. This is a perfect participle. Perfect passive participle. That's a bit of a mouthful if you say it 500 times quickly. The perfect passive, which means that God has done it completely. God has caused you to be born again. No condemnation now, I dread. Thanks for that hymn. I wish I could remember the rest of the words. <laughs> no condemnation now, I dread. Because he has redeemed. He has caused us to be born again. And to make this point, he goes to Isaiah. So please turn with me to Isaiah. He makes the point that it is a imperishable thing that has caused us to be born again. And the imperishable thing is actually the word of God. He uses a quote out of Isaiah chapter 40. So I just want to spend a brief moment giving the context of Isaiah 40 and then drawing some, some applications for us from this portion. Isaiah chapter 40. Actually, we might start in Isaiah 39, just to give you the context. Isaiah 39, verse 5, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming, when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up until this day shall be carried away to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. So Isaiah is giving a warning to one of the kings of Israel saying, you guys are going to be exiled. You're going to be removed from your home. You're going to be removed from the holy city. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the place of the king of Babylon. So even identifies where they're going. They're off to Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. That's what Hezekiah thought. There was to a degree, but beyond that, we have an exile. These next 11 verses, I just want to spend some time talking through, because this is where this quote comes from in First Peter, which is very impactful. The word of the Lord is imperishable and stands forever. Verse 40, chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I shall say, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
Get you up a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not, says to the cities of Judah. Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Without any question at all, these verses in Isaiah 41 to 11 are language of covenant promise. It's been prophesied that the nation is going to be taken into exile. Everything's stripped from them. And Isaiah envisages that, that this is going to be cause great distress. And these people are going to be discouraged, incredibly discouraged. But look at this proclamation, folks. This is a beautiful proclamation. It's a proclamation of comfort. It's a proclamation of hope. It's a proclamation of promised deliverance. Starts with comfort, comfort my people. The descendants of Abraham in this context and of Jacob need not fear because God will not forget his promises. You read further down that God's word stands forever. God's word is sure. Look at the end of verse 5. Why is it sure? Because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. The word of God stands forever, verses 6 through 8. And then God reminds the future exiles that he himself is coming in power. He is going to reward and also give retribution. He's going to come as a shepherd of his people. See, every leading thought of Isaiah 40 fits well into what Peter is saying. Peter is too addressing readers who are exiled. Peter is addressing readers that are oppressed. He has the same message for them of comfort, of hope, of encouragement. Peter he contrasts the perishable with the imperishable. The incorruptible nature of the Christian's inheritance is our hope. It's a living hope. However, if you notice a little bit more closely, Peter adds something to this. Peter adds something to it. 1 Peter 1, 24, 25. For all flesh is like grass, and the glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter tells us what the word is. The word is the person and work of Christ. It's the gospel. That's what's living and abiding and active. 
Dear friends, sit in front of me here. It's been a tough week. Take comfort in these words. God's word is imperishable. God's word and his promises remain forever. This is why we can have a living hope. We don't have a dead hope. We don't, we're, we're not a people without any hope. We have a living hope. This is why when, when tragedy strikes, when, when things happen that we cannot explain, that we have a living hope because God's word says we do. God's word says it, it's good enough for me. I hope that's your attitude. This word is infallible. This word is inerrant. This word is God's revealed word to us. This promise that, that God's word has caused us to be born again and God's word purifies our souls and God's word enables us to love one another gives us great comfort and great hope. So when tragedy strikes, when things happen that we cannot explain, you know, like, in our view, the early promotion of, of Coppin to glory. You see, because we trust in God's promises, because our hope is based on the perishable word and promises of God, we know one day we're going to see our dear brother. And we're going to rejoice with him. He is rejoicing now. He has no more pain, no more sorrow, no more fear. He's in the presence of our precious Savior. Why don't you look forward to the day when together we can praise God with him? I do. And that promise is based on God's eternal indwelling word, the gospel. The basis of loving one another earnestly is the gospel, the impact of the good news in our lives. This is why in striving to be obedient, um, is the central platform of God's word. We're only obedient because God tells us to be obedient and he provides the grace to be so. It shapes our sanctification. So this morning I trust that this has been an encouragement. I hope this has helped answer the questions further. How, as Christians, are we living in this world? According to this command, we are to live in the world by loving one another. We are to be examples to this world of what happens in here and our love for one another should be different to anything else the world can experience. Because it's gospel-centered. Because it's based on the death, burial and resurrection of Christ our Savior. You see, the way we love one another is a gospel testimony. Think about it. As you wear rough shoulders with your colleagues, if you're not given to envy, slander, hypocrisy, those sorts of things which aren't fruit of the Spirit, as you rub shoulders, they'll see the difference. They'll see the light and salt and they'll want to ask why 
So as Christians, we live in the world with by earnestly loving one another through the power of the Spirit. One of the marks of our faith that uh, should be evident to all, there's two marks. We should have a life of obedience to the Word of God. This should be our rule and guide in everything we do. Because God's Word is eternal. God's Word is infallible. God's Word is inerrant. And what is another mark of our faith is how our life should be centred on loving others. In what ways does God's work in our salvation change our outlook on life? That was the third question. It gives us great comfort. It gives us great comfort and encouragement because it's imperishable. This is the truth. This is God's word. And when we understand and and work this in our own hearts through the power of the Spirit, you will set your hope fully on the grace that's going to be revealed in Christ. And that will provide great comfort, great hope, and great promise. I'd like to invite the music team up and we'll sing our last song.